Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Hey, Alyssa, have you ever come out of a race with a really bad sunburn? I sure have. My very first Kona, I'll never forget. It was awful. Well, I think I have a product for you. Zelio Sun Barrier SPF 45 is a zinc-based and water-resistant sunscreen. It's long-lasting, oil-free, and won't sting your eyes. I've used it, and it works great. I'll have to try it because I have heard that Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like Heather Jackson, Lindsay Corbin, Jesse Thomas, and Rachel McBride. Wait, did you forget someone? Oh, that's right. And our very own Haley Chura. Well, Zelio's products are made with high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest days, sweatiest training sessions, and toughest elements. They give athletes like us confidence and peace of mind to perform at our best without worrying about our skin or hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without are the Sun Barrier SPF 45, the Twixt Chamois Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and the Body Lotion. You can use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com to get 20% off. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Welcome home. How are you feeling? And congratulations on your, I guess, congratulations first. Now, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, I think my voice is going to give me away here a little bit. Um, thanks, Alyssa. I did just get home from Ironman 70.3 Coeur d'Alene, one of my favorite races on the circuit. And I, I'm not sick. I think I might have I don't know, maybe an allergy or something, or maybe I just breathe too hard while I run. Is that a thing? Maybe someone can write into our mailbag and, and tell me if this is a normal thing that happens to normal people or if I should be concerned and start like Googling how I, why I'm losing my voice. But um, thanks. I'm, I'm pretty happy with my race. I think it's just because you ran so fast with what, like a 121, right? So that is pretty fast. And I think definitely fast enough to like do something to the lining of your lungs. So I think <laughs> well, that's thanks. the end result. Yeah. We'll say that. We'll say that. A small price to pay. So, 
I was just going so hard. I know I did. I, yeah, I, I won 21 split. It's the fastest I've run on that course. And I was really excited. And I finished fifth. I mean, we had an incredible field. And Alyssa was crazy. So I was first out of the water. I had a good swim. And, and then there's this big climb. Well, you raced there. This big climb right around, it's like mile 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there. And on the bike course. And so... I got passed by a pro male who I had passed in the water. And so he was, he came up behind me and came by me. And then right after he passed me, Heather Jackson passed me. And then I watched Heather Jackson pass the pro male. Yeah. It was pretty awesome to watch. I mean, it was like, it was incredible. And she did go on to win the race. She had an incredible race. And Marinda Carfrey was second. Heather Wartell third. And, um, Melanie McQuaid fourth and then Jeannie Seymour. I got to give a big shout out to Jeannie Seymour because she helped me get through the second half of the bike. And she is a tremendous, tremendous runner. And we have had her on the podcast here, I think like a year and year and a half ago. But, um, you know, she's had some major success. And I was telling myself, I'm like, if you can stay with Jeannie on the bike, like and come off the bike with her, like, you know, you're going to run well because you're going to try to stick with Jeannie. And so I did. That was the goal. And I, I know it wasn't Jeannie's best day again, but you know, these are the ups and downs of racing. And, and it was awesome for me to get to race with Jeannie and get to run with Jeannie and yeah. And hats off to all the women in the race. It was, it was a, it was a good one. It was a beautiful day in Coeur d'Alene. And, and I got a lot of shout outs from I was podcast just listeners. Say, yeah. So let's, okay. So we've ha- heard about the race. And so I, I believe you were doing a pro panel in the, the day or two before. Right. And so how did that go? And did you run into any fans in the pre-race days at all? Oh yeah. I mean, Alyssa, this was so cool. So I was on the panel with Marinda Carvey, Heather Wartel, Heather Jackson, and I were the four women who were on this panel. So I was the only one who has not been on a world championship podium or won a world championship. I felt a little intimidated, but then I love, I love being on panels and chatting with people. So I was like, oh, I'm going to live it up. You know, like, uh, yeah, I was two time defending champion. No one could take those away from me. So I'm like, I'm going to act like exactly. I belong here. And so one of the questions they asked was like someone from the audience, they asked some really great questions and they asked about who I think is like up and coming in the pro field. And I was like, oh, I mean, someone handed the mic to me and I was like, I definitely am qualified to answer this. And, and I said, you know, I host this, I co-host this podcast. It's called the Iron Women podcast. And, and once I said the name of the podcast, I actually got like an audible response from the crowd. Oh my gosh. I love it. Yay. Yeah. So thank you to everyone who, who came came to the pro panel who, you know, who listens to the podcast. And, and I met a lot of afterwards, they, we got to like do a little meet and greet. And, you know, again, I was, I, there was some, you know, I'm sitting next to three time world champion, Miranda Carfrey. And I was like, Oh, I need to get out of the way for Rennie's fans. And, and I had a couple fans, you know, and mostly, you know, people who listened to the podcast who came up and said hello and got photos. And and I'm really appreciative of that. So thank you to everyone who does listen, who says hi and who cheered for me during the race and who said hi after the race. It was fantastic to meet so many of you and congratulations to all of you on your, on your fantastic races as well. That's awesome. Well, we always love seeing you have a good day, Haley. So congratulations again. And we're actually going to jump right into our mailbag question this week. And we, we always have a couple kind of sitting there. So if we haven't gotten to your question yet, we have it planned for a future episode. Sometimes things fit with the theme of the week, kind of with depending on who we're talking to or something like that. So don't be alarmed if we haven't gotten to yours and keep sending in those questions to 
ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And Haley, I thought you'd be very well suited for this week's question. It is coming in from Mandy, and she has a question about post-race recovery. So after a big race or a big workout, what do you do as recovery to prevent sore muscles, and how long do we wait to train again? She did her first half marathon, and even after stretching and rolling, her leg and back muscles are super sore for a few days. Kind of like related slash follow-up question is, what do we do for post-race nutrition? This is a great question. This is a great question, and it really fits today's episode, even with our who we have up for our interview, because we it, today's episode is very, very recovery-focused. But I would say, I mean, as far as waiting, I mean, waiting to exercise, I don't wait at all. I mean, in Coeur d'Alene, I honestly considered the lake was so warm this year. I think it was like 67. So I considered like even after the race, because the race starts really early. It starts at like 6 a.m. So we're done at like 10.30, like pretty early. And and I like to hang around my kit. So I did consider like going for a swim right there. Like very, very easy. Like we'd be talking like 10 minutes of easy kicking, like very easy swimming. I think you could do that immediately after the race or not immediately, like get some food and use chat with people, but you know, pretty soon because that's going to like get you started on your recovery practice, you know, recovery. So kind of getting right into just some easy movement, getting the blood flowing. If you can't get in the lake or do an easy swim, maybe like uh, an easy 30 minute ride on the bike. I did actually do that today. I was at 50 Watts on the trainer. So like as easy as my trainer goes and, you know, just spinning super easy just to keep the blood flowing. Yeah, I agree. I think that doing something as soon as you can is the key. So like, you know, it's, I think a lot of people have this instinct, instinct to like build up race day and then you finally get to do race day. Right. And then you just kind of want to like relax and like, you've been spending all this time training and you want to just kind of have some off days and things like that. And my advice is always to wait at least one day, if not even two or three days before you take a day completely off after a big race, just to do some easy, like 50 watt bike spinning, easy, easy swims. I tend to do like 20 minute jogs and I'll take my dog out and do like sometimes walk run type of things. But you know, even I just find that continuing to even just do super light jogging really helps my body stay kind of healthy in that time afterwards. And to your point, like we're doing all this with sore legs and back muscles and like everything's sore and things still hurt. And like sometimes what I think may be a jog, like people would look at me and be like, you're not jogging, Alyssa, like this isn't even a jog, you know, but just going through the motions, I think one for like habit forming and just kind of staying into that mentality is helpful, but also just like getting the blood flowing and that's how you're going to help those muscles not be as sore. But we will talk about a little bit more about some of those recovery methods um, with our guests later. But first, so for follow-up post-race nutrition, this is funny because, you know, you're only left with so many options if you are counting on what's at the race, right? And so I don't have diet many, if any at all, I don't think, dietary restrictions or like many rules or anything like that for myself. So I typically rely on whatever is there and I'm usually not, I've planned ahead so much for the race that like that post race, I usually, you know, do drop the ball a little bit on that. And if I don't, don't have something like I, I'm not someone to bring a protein shake or something with me, but I think a lot of people do, which is a great idea. But I just, my rule of thumb is to like 
eat as soon as I can. You know, if it's post-race pizza, that's typically my favorite thing to try and get down. But whatever they have, you know, just have plenty of fluids, keep yourself hydrated, keep eating as much as you can. Sometimes it takes a little bit and like, you know, sometimes I'll spend 30 minutes to eat a piece of pizza kind of thing. But keeping eating, I think anything is really just the key. I wouldn't worry too, too much about exactly what it is. I agree. I I was really craving watermelon after Coeur d'Alene, which probably means I was thirsty, but um, because it is mostly water. So I did. I hung out with my friends, Joe and Steph over by the finish line. We had pizza and watermelon. And then we we moved up to the um, beer and tacos a couple hours later. (laughs) So that's my post-race nutrition. I, I do think getting calories in is more important than what those calories are. Yep. I agree. So great question, Mandy. And keep sending in those questions to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And after you send us your mailbag question, don't forget to enter our noon hydration and live feisty contest. You go to livefeisty.noonlife.com. It is ending this week on July 7th at midnight or 1159 Pacific time is the last chance you have to enter. So do it early and don't miss it. And you are entering to win a year's worth of noon plus a one-on-one consultation with Dr. Stacy Sims. So really great prizes there. We're going to have two lucky winners. So you have two double. Yeah, I actually, I don't think I realized that. And I'm just reading it off the website right now. So two lucky winners. (laughs) I didn't know that either. Oh, I think it's must have been that way all along, but surprise, guys, it's two lucky winners. So keep entering and you might have double the chance that you thought you would. Um, And also before the end of July, you can register for the Outspoken Summit. So the 2019 Outspoken Summit is November 15th to 17th in Tempe, Arizona. Tons and tons of new stuff we'll talk about this month in future episodes that's coming to Outspoken. But for now, just make sure you go to the website. Everything's up there. And the early bird registration rate does end at the end of July. So make sure you hop on that. Oh, and then we we wanted to give a thank you to one of our sponsors, to Wahoo Fitness this week, right? Yes. And so if you are doing some shopping And maybe like Christmas in July, that's a thing, right? I can rationalize any sort of online shopping, I think. So if you're celebrating Christmas in July with me, then you could maybe be looking to upgrade your bike computer. And Wahoo Fitness is a great company that supports women in triathlon. They have a lot of great products that Haley and I are both using and trusting for our own training. And you can head over there and check those out if you're looking... For something like that. And we have our interview this week, Alyssa. I'm really excited about this one. And um, I think you're going to do a good introduction because your, your introduction is going to be a lot smoother than mine this week. Well, Haley, I am getting a kick out of listening to you speak a little bit, but I, I do have the introduction here. And as we teased already, we talked to Christy Ashwanden, and she is the author of Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. She's also the co-host of her own podcast uh, called Emerging Form, which is about the creative process. So you can check that out, too. She's the former lead science writer at 538, uh, which is a website I, I bet a lot of you have 
seen or gone to before. And she was previously a health columnist for the Washington Post. She's contributed to Runner's World, Bicycling Magazine, New York Times. So you maybe have stumbled across her work before, but this is a very interesting book that she put out. And as we said, it, it deals with the science of recovery. And she puts a lot of those methods that, you know, things that maybe even Haley and I just talked about earlier to the test. And she'll let you know if they really do wonders for the recovery process or if it's all kind of a myth. So we'll hear from Christy after a word from our sponsors. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including kicker smart trainers, Element bike computers and ticker heart rate monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, your book, Good to Go, really hooked me in the first chapter. You're a science writer and an accomplished athlete, and you tell us about a study you led to determine whether beer has any impact on an athlete's recovery and subsequent performance. So like you, I loved that your study's results showed that beer actually improved athletic performance in women while hindering the performance of men. But I loved even more was how you picked apart your own study to show the flaws in your research, even suggesting the results weren't completely reliable. Darn. But can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> some of the pitfalls of your own beer study and what kinds of things we should be looking for when we read headlines that are touting the results of the latest and greatest in sports science? Yeah, sure. So, you know, this question sort of occurred to me after a race. It's something that a lot of my friends and I like to do is after a hard workout, we'll relax with a cold beer. And, you know, we usually stop with one. This isn't about getting drunk or anything, but it's just a nice relaxing sort of post-workout ritual. But I started to think about it after this hard race that I had done where I was always getting very sore afterwards. And I thought, you know, is this beer that we're having afterwards impairing recovery? And it seemed like a really straightforward question. You know, it would think you would seem like this is a simple thing to study, right? And so we put together a study. I, I collaborated with some researchers at my local university, Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, we put together a study to look at this, and we worked really hard to put together sort of a very scientific protocol. Um, I was involved in sort of helping to plan the study, but it was really the scientists who were in charge and were doing you know, the, the protocol and all of that. And because we had human subjects, we needed to get permission and all of that. Um, but anyway, the methodologies that we used were things that are very standard in, in studies like this. But the thing that was really interesting is I was not just a planner of the study, I was also a participant. And as a participant, I noticed some things that I don't think I would have paid attention to had I not been a participant. And these are just little things. And in, in the book, I think I call them inadvertent nudges. But what I realized is that it's really easy to sort of push things one way way or another. And one example of this is that the measure that we used to really look at recovery, we, we measured several things, but the one where we found a difference that you know seemed really exciting, which is that beer seemed to be helpful for women, is that uh, women who had had beer after the hard run, the next day they were able to go longer on this thing called a run to exhaustion. And this is something where you're basically put on a treadmill um, and you have to go. In our case, we were going at 80% of our VO2 max, and we were supposed to go as long as we could. But what I found out being a participant is that this was sort of a weird open-ended test that isn't like anything that we do in real life. 
it's not really something that that is you know equivalent to a performance test or something like that. But what ended up happening is before the study began, we had a meeting and someone asked one of the researchers, you know, how long should we expect to last in this test? And he said, well, about 20 minutes. And so afterwards, I talked to everyone and we all felt like, okay, we needed to go 20 minutes. And then after that, it was sort of, then we could decide whether to stop or not. And the thing that was really telling to me is there were two people who missed that meeting and got private briefings where that question wasn't raised. And neither of those two people lasted 20 minutes. And so it really did seem like the, you know, just cr- the expectation that researchers can create for participants can really have a strong influence on what happens. And in my book, I have a whole chapter about placebos, which really I like to think of as things that are acting on the expectation effect. And so the idea here is that your expectation of an experience can really exert a very strong influence on how you actually experience that thing. So anyway, getting back to our beer study, what we found is that women seemed to do better the next day and that their recovery was better after we had had the beer. And I was you know, among them and I seemed to perform better. But we had some methodological issues that really sort of raised these findings into question. And one of the big issues was that the study was very small. We only had 10 people five men and five women. And so this is something in most clinical medicine medicine trials, you would never have a trial that small. But in sports medicine and sports science, this is very common to have these small sample sizes. And one problem is that, you know, there's natural variability between one person and another. Um, Some of these tests have just natural variability. If you were to give this run to exhaustion test to individual runners from day to day, they might perform differently just because of natural variation. And so you really have to question whether these results that you're finding are really a result of the intervention. So in this case, the beer, or whether they are just part of this natural variation and whether this effect that you're seeing is real or whether it's just an artifact of your study design. And this is why it's really important, I think, um, you know, for the general public when you're evaluating this stuff and for journalists too, to really ask, okay, how certain can we be of the study? Is this just one small study? Is this um, one of many? These studies need to be reproduced and replicated to really ensure that, that they're, um, you know, not just flukes. And so, Christy, with a healthy knowledge of the limitations of sports science research then in mind, you decided to take on the concept of recovery and put nearly every recovery modality you could get your hands on to the test, while you also were talking to researchers and athletes about their own experiences with these things. So did you have your own hypothesis going into the project about kind of what you would find? Well, I knew that a lot of these things were a lot of hype. And this is just, I mean, this is not even me being like a super informed scientist or anything. I mean, I think most of us know that a lot of this stuff is just chewy, but I really expected, you know, I've been an athlete most of my life and recovery really seems to be something where, you know, in the last five years in particular, there's just been this influx of new products and things. And I really thought like, okay, some of this stuff must really work. If, if there's so much, you know, attention being paid and so much money being spent, like I must be, I really expected that I would come out of this with some really new, great recovery tools. But what I found is that so much of it was just really marketing, which surprised me, actually. And Christy, you mentioned your own athletic performances. Specifically, um, you mentioned the book, Your Nordic Skiing Career, where you admittedly overtrained. You recognize now that you are the type of athlete who gets in shape quickly and needs more recovery time to be at your best. But doing your own thing and going against the grain is really hard. So especially in this day and age of social media where comparison is inevitable and it seems like every Instagram post brags about the number of hours trained or meters climbed, 
Do you hope that your book might help change this more is better culture of endurance sport? Yeah, I really do hope so. And I think that this is really problematic now too, because, you know, back when I was a serious athlete, we didn't have Strava, we didn't have Instagram, we didn't have all these things. I mean, back then you could look at what your competitors were doing because, you know, especially with Nordic skiing, you tend to all be sort of training in similar places, or we would be at training camps in the fall where, you know, all the teams would be there and you could kind of see who was training when, but now you can actually, I mean, athletes will be actually sharing, not just uh, how long they were doing, but their actual training charts and mileage and elevation and all of this, even heart rate. And so it's really easy for people to sort of get this fear of missing out, uh, but also this sort of unhealthy comparison. I think one really important lesson that came out of my research is that recovery and response to training both are extremely individual. And so, you know, I think all of us have had this experience, you know, you're on a team and you're doing the same workouts, but people are responding differently. Um, if that wasn't the case, then, you know, all you'd have to do is do the same training as say the world champion and you too could run that fast, right? Or cycle that fast or whatever it is. Um, so I think that one of the most important things, um, to really come out of my research is that it's really important for athletes to learn to read their own bodies. And that was something that I think I struggled with a little bit myself as an athlete. I was someone who overtrained very easily. I, also responded to training very fast. And so if I had just been a little bit better about, you know, trusting myself um, and having confidence to say, you know, I know everyone else is training a lot more hours, but for me, I actually do best on fewer hours and just having that confidence and being able to trust my body. And I think one thing that I, I really noticed while, while researching these recovery modalities is that so much of the marketing is really about telling athletes that they can't trust their body. You think you're okay, but you're missing out. You know, there's this other thing that you could be doing. You know, a really good example of this is all of the marketing around hydration and this idea that you have to, to drink early and often, which is just completely contrary to the science. Um, our bodies have this really sophisticated way of telling us when we need to drink. It's called thirst. Um, you can really drink to thirst and be okay. But we've been, you know, we've been told by these sports drink companies and these bottled water companies and all, all of these, you know, marketing entities that we can't trust our bodies. And we, you know, now we need a scientist looking over our shoulder. I mean, there are companies now that are marketing like individual hydration monitors, which this is just ridiculous. You really can drink to thirst We've gotten to the point now where people are actually dying of overhydration, and they're doing this because they've been told that they need to drink a lot all the time, and their pee has to be, you know, absolutely clear. They might be dehydrated, and their performance might suffer. And this is just contrary to what the research shows. And Christy, we wanted to talk through a few of the recovery modalities that you explore and which, you know, unfortunately for some people might not work quite as advertised. And so this yeah. will just be kind of the cliff notes version. And then we'll dig into a few of them in a little bit more in depth, but sure. first up was ice, ice baths and the cryotherapy chambers. So basically you found that this was one that definitely didn't really work as advertised you think. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was really interesting. I really expected that ice baths were going to be really potent recovery tools. Yeah. This is something that's been around for a long time. Ice baths are not at all new. I mean, they may be sort of more popular. I think that the age of Instagram has made all of this stuff maybe more visible and there's more of a sense of everyone looking to see what other people are doing. But ice baths have been around for a really long time. I have done them at various times. Yeah. They're very painful, which makes it seem like, oh, it must be, it must really be working if it hurts so much, right? Yeah. It hurts at first and then you, it go, things go numb. And so that can feel really nice. It can be a good way of, of relieving pain sometimes. 
Uh, but what the research shows is really interesting. It actually shows there's some pretty decent evidence now that, that icing can actually um, uh, reduce some of your response to exercise. So there's one study that I write about in the book that was really interesting. They put people on a strength training program, and then they iced one limb or the other. So like you'd ice one arm or not the other, or one leg. And what they found is that the, the limb that had gotten the ice actually experienced more fatigue, uh, that recovery was delayed, um, there were redu reductions in the muscle strength gains that you would otherwise uh, have. And they also found some sort of like reduced activation of key proteins. So it wasn't just that icing wasn't helping, but that it actually might be hindering recovery, which is really interesting. And I think a lot of this goes back to, so one of the ideas about icing is that it's reducing inflammation. And so the idea is that you're reducing blood flow, you're reducing the flow of inflammatory molecules and agents to the muscle. And so the problem though, is that inflammation is part of your body's healing process. And this is a really fundamental part of how you get fitter, faster, stronger in response to exercise and to training. And so if you're basically holding back your body's repair mechanisms, so you're impairing your ability to come back and recover from that training. And the next one, I this one was huge news to me. Um, it was nutrient timing because I go back to my high school days when I was a swimmer and my coach, like the example they use in the book of Indurox, you know, that Indurox R4, like the actual product, that was what he was like. He's like, make sure you take this within 30 minutes of exercise, you know, 30 minutes of practice, have your water bottle right there, you know, bring it to practice, everything. But that that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. So, and I want to say, it's not so much that it doesn't work, it's that it's not so crucial. And this this is one of those things where we have, we have really been sort of given this idea that everything's like so precarious and we have to do things just exactly perfectly or everything's going to go to crap, right? And so this is an example of that, but it's a really interesting scientific story too. So what happened was there were some pretty intriguing studies that were looking at um, post-exercise nutrition. And what they were seeing was that it seemed to be really important that you get some carbohydrate and protein in right after the workout. And this came to be known as the window of recovery or the anabolic window. There are different names for it, and there are different studies looking into this. But basically, the idea was that after exercise, your body was sort of like, you know, extra prime to absorb nutrients. And that was the time you need to, needed to get that nutrition. And if you missed that window, your, your recovery was really going to suffer. But what has subsequently, you know, we found out with further study, and this goes back to the idea of like, you can't just do one study and assume you know everything. You know, scientific knowledge is a, a slow accumulation of information, and it takes time, and we're very often wrong on the way to being right. So it's very natural for these things to be overturned or for our understanding to change. It's not that people are bad scientists or anything like that. It's just that this is how science works. So it turns out that what was actually the important thing was not so much the timing of that nutrition, but the actual nutrition itself. So protein is very important for athletes, but it doesn't need to be taken in one giant serving immediately after you exercise. And in fact, it's probably better to just have be eating protein throughout the day with all of your meals. So you don't need to go have this ginormous protein shake after your run or your swim. You can have a normal meal. And it can be in the matter, of course, of a few hours. It doesn't even need to be, you know, sometimes the recovery window is said to be 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, but really, 
the only time that really holds is if you are about to perform again. Yes, if you are, say, in a swim meet where you're going to be having different rounds um, and you're going to have to do another hard performance, you might want to replenish some of that energy. But then you get into situations, too, you have to be careful because you can have gastrointestinal distress and things like that. And I think that's where some of the sports foods and things can be helpful with that. But this idea that you have to replenish right away and that it needs to be this big bolus of carbohydrate or protein is just, that's nonsense. It's fine to wait till your next meal. You'll be okay. Unless, unless you're going to perform at a high level or do another workout, you're doing two days or something like that. It's the timing is really not so important. Your body will be fine. You'll recover. <laughs> so the next one was very interesting. I read this chapter pretty closely because I am uh, a fan of my weekly massage times for a lot of reasons, which I think you kind of got into there too. But massage, you said mostly was found to be really effective if the recovery time is, so if you're getting it within like 10 minutes of finishing a workout, which I can guarantee I'm certainly not on yeah, right. my massage table less than 10 minutes after a workout. So otherwise there's no evidence it helps for recovery. But I, I imagine this is one a, a lot of people want to push back on you with, right? Yeah. And I just want to clarify. So we don't have good scientific evidence for this. So there's a lot of claims that are made about massage. So like one of the most common claims, not just for massage, but a lot of these recovery modalities is that it's flushing lactic acid. And it turns out that lactic acid is not what makes you sore. It's not something that needs to be flushed. Your, your body actually, your muscles actually clear it quite quickly. Like chances are that lactic acid is gone by the time you're on the massage table. Like it's just not, that's not going to be an effective way doing it. And lactic acid isn't the thing that you want to be doing. But what's interesting is that, you know, all of these claims that are made about flushing different, there's a lot of claims made about toxins too. And that's sort of another red flag. Like our bodies have ways of getting rid of toxins. Um, it's called our liver and kidney, you know, and you don't need extra things to, to do that. But I think that it's not fair to say that massage doesn't help at all. And I think that there's a reason that it's such a, a popular recovery modality for athletes. And that is, yeah, first of all, it feels really good. You're also lying down and relaxing for half an hour, an hour. Like, I think you cannot overstate the importance of that. And so much of what a lot of these recovery modalities really do and where they get their effectiveness, when they work, very often it's because they help you relax in some way. Another real benefit, I think, uh, for massage is something that's really difficult to quantify. And that is this sort of body awareness that athletes can get from it. You know, you're getting a sense of, it's sort of a way of checking in on your body. Where are you feeling sore? Um, do you have thoughts somewhere? You know, how, how are you feeling? And I think that's a really important aspect of it that is just hard to quantify in a scientific study. And, and this last one, um, is well, anything basically promoted by Tom Brady, it seems like does not work <laughs> as advertised. Like if, when people start spouting off the TB 12 method, you should just like walk away. Right. Yeah. Muscle pliability is not a thing. That is an invented word. Uh, yeah. I've been hearing from a lot of Tom Brady fans. They really, really hate me, but you know, science doesn't care whether you believe in it. So I uh, think the truth will march on. And Christy, so with all of these recovery uh, modalities that we mentioned, we, you know, I said that I swear by massage for, for recovery. I'm sure some others will swear by their cryo chamber and things like that. And it turns out like you might actually agree with them because you do have an entire chapter dedicated to that placebo effect that you mentioned before, yeah. where if people believe something is working, then it might actually work. So can you just dive into that a little bit more and tell us about 
a little bit about the role of like how our own mental expectations play into that physical recovery? Yeah. Yeah. I really like to call it the the expectation effect rather than the placebo effect, because when we think of placebo, we usually think of something like, oh, that's code for it doesn't work. When in fact, placebos can be extremely effective. And in fact, I think that one of the things that the science is showing is that many of the most popular things that people do for recovery really do work through the placebo effect. And what it's doing is sort of altering people's expectations of how they'll feel. And that can have real effects. And these can have measurable effects. I mean, there are some really interesting studies on placebos with pain drugs, where just the expectation that you're getting, say, an opioid or something can actually um, change some of the chemistry in your brain. So some of this can actually lead to real physiological changes that you can measure. But I think at the end of the day, you know, my advice for people is not like, oh, nothing works forget about it. Um, there are some things that we can get in a moment thing that really, really works. But if you're doing something that's helping you relax, that's giving you an occasion, and particularly, I think that some of these things can be really helpful in the sense that they're helping athletes to ritualize recovery and they're sort of helping them to make it a part of their training process. It's a problem if recovery becomes its own source of stress. And I think that's the danger here. Um, you shouldn't be wasting a lot of money or a, a ton of time on it. But I think what is really helpful is for athletes to have some sort of daily ritual or some sort of post-workout ritual for relaxing. And it's kind of, I think it's a, you know, it tells us something about the society we're living in now that we need help relaxing, but we do. And I think so many athletes who are really driven, you know, there's a sense of people wanting to do everything. And sometimes, you know, the best thing that you can do for recovery is just put your feet up on the couch, lie back with a book, you know, or something like that. But so often, you know, that doesn't feel good enough for us. We want, we'd rather be doing something than just, you know, relaxing and doing nothing. And I think, you know, maybe just embracing the concept of doing nothing can be really helpful. But I think, you know, the other thing that I I found is that a lot of, a lot of these recovery tools are really just something for people to do while they wait for recovery to happen in their body and their body to sort of do its own thing. And, you know, I, I can understand some people really need that. And so I don't want to totally poo poo that, Uh, But I think it's just important to make sure that you're not turning recovery into its own source of stress because emotional stress is deadly to recovery. And I think that's a really common, common, I I write about this a lot in the book, but it's a very common mistake that that athletes make is that they don't recognize it to their bodies. Um, Stress is stress, whether it's coming from your workouts or from, you know, other things in your life. And so if you have a lot of stress going on in your life, you're just not going to have the same capacity for training or for performance or for recovery as you are during other times. And so it's also really, really important that athletes develop good coping skills for dealing with stress. You can't eliminate stress, you know, life stress here I'm talking about, um, but it's really important to find ways to manage it because otherwise you're just going to run yourself into the ground. So sitting in traffic for an hour, getting to the cryo chamber is probably not a good idea. Probably not going to help right. you like the three minutes that you spend in there or not. That that may be a personal example but, um, that I've done. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so, um, but what you've mentioned hydration before earlier and just how people, it seems like, you know, athletes, people, both, you know, we're kind of taught not to trust our bodies. And you have another chapter called the perfect fuel where, you know, you talk about, you know, jelly donuts, peanut butter, jelly sandwiches, you know, designer, you know, whatever protein shakes. 
you know, we're taught to always be like this, you know, what we're doing isn't enough and what we're doing isn't right. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what is it with food, you know, food and drink that makes trusting ourselves so difficult? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, food has a really strong cultural component too. And I think one thing that I see a lot that I think is really unhealthy is this sort of demonizing of food where there's good foods and bad foods. And, you know, to your body, you need certain nutrients. And I mean, it's very clear that some foods are better than others. But when we start thinking about foods in this this sort of, you know, religious way almost, that there are so many ideas about nutrition that really sort of border on religion rather than science. And I wrote a whole story for 538. Uh, the headline was something like, you can't trust what you read about nutrition. Really getting into why the, the studies on nutrition are really fairly unreliable and that we really don't have uh, the kind of information that we would like to about, you know, everyone wants to know what's the best superfood or exactly, you know, what sort of fruit or vegetable or grain is best. But the kind of studies that we can do that are feasible, it's just not possible to understand these things at that sort of level of granularity. And so rather than focusing on or worrying about making sure you have the latest superfood, and this stuff is mostly marketing anyway, you know, the thing to do is have a varied diet that's mostly whole foods. And, you know, we, we sort of intuitively know what good food is versus bad food, but the idea that like everything's going to come down to one particular meal or that you have to eat, you know, so specifically a particular thing, I think it can really start to become, again, its own source of stress. In the book, I talk about how Usain Bolt won a bunch of gold medals, you know, basically subsisting in the Olympic village on chicken nuggets. And I don't think anyone would point to chicken nuggets as health food. And I'm not endorsing that people should, you know, make that a huge part of their diets. But I think the takeaway here is that we don't have to be perfect all the time. And that, you know, you need to have a generally good diet. But we have this idea, um, you know, we know that what we put in our bodies is really important. It's what fuels us. But that makes us really vulnerable to marketing and to people that are making claims that are not based on good science. And so I think one of the best things that athletes can do when it comes to this is just relax a little bit and not get so uptight and stressed out about food because nutrition is important, but you don't have to be perfect. <laughs> So that segues perfectly to my next question about the stress management, because as you kind of alluded to, one of the recovery tactics that a lot of pro athletes you interviewed touched on, it wasn't a device or a chamber, but it had to do with that kind of like stress management and being able to, I remember, I forget who exactly it was, was talking about travel and just kind of being like, you know, I'm going to have to let it go that there's going to be delays and, you know, things are going to go wrong. My bags won't get there. And you just can't let that add on to the stress. And so on the podcast, we often talk about barriers to entry with triathlon. And at the top of that list is often affordability, right? So yeah. at the top, on one hand, it sounds like spending a lot of money on recovery gimmicks isn't something you need to do, but it also sounds like having resources to spend money on things that might save you some stress or save you time in the day, make travel more comfortable, like eliminate some of those stressors is more than worth it, right? Which could add up the cost of recovery in the end. So while you were doing this project and with your own knowledge as an elite athlete, did you reflect it all on the economic aspect of recovery and have we kind of made recovery its own barrier to entry with sport as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely all of these devices and things cost money, some more than others, you know, the Normatec boots that everyone wants. And I understand, I mean, they, they feel really great. I would totally have a pair if I could afford them, right? They're just nice. Um, they're not necessary. Um, they're a way to put your feet up for half an hour and feel good. This goes back to the idea of, of relaxing. Um, but doing all this stuff can cost money, but I don't think that it has to. And I think that really the number one most effective thing for recovery is sleep. There's nothing else that comes even close. And so if you are not sleeping well, if you are not getting sufficient sleep, like it, forget about this other stuff. Like there's nothing, you can add up every single other thing and double it and it still won't be as effective as sleep. And so I think that some of it is just getting back to the basics and making sure, you know, you're paying attention to your body, you're, you're listening to it, you're getting enough sleep. You know, I don't think that you need to buy all these products, you know, and even with nutrition stuff, it's like, you don't need to go buy the expensive protein shakes. You can have some eggs at your next meal. You can eat nuts. I mean, there are other, there are real foods that are just as nutritious, probably more nutritious. I won't get into that. I have a whole chapter about supplements and all of that. And, you know, there are one thing to know though, if you're, if you are being drug tested, if you are doing the kinds of races, where that might be a possibility. Um, you want to really be careful about supplements. And in fact, I would argue there's really no good reason for athletes to be taking supplements at all. The risks are just far too great and there just really aren't any proven benefits to them. But yeah, really, I think a lot of it is just situating your life so that you are able to get enough sleep and making that a priority, which could be challenging. I understand, particularly, you know, I think so often right now in our society, most people have, you know, things, a life set up so that they have to get up at a certain time in the morning. So, yeah, it's pretty rare to be able to just sleep and wake up without an alarm or sleep in as late as your body might want to. And that means that you have to sort of deal with sleep on the other end, which is getting to bed early enough. And that's something we have so many demands on our time and our attention that that can be difficult. But I think what it really takes is deciding that, okay, I'm going to make recovery a priority and that means sleeping. And so it's just not going to be negotiable. Um, we joke on here because about a year ago, I think it was, I started setting a bedtime alarm for myself and it's so hard. Like, it's crazy how hard it is. I mean, it is one of those things. I don't follow it every single day, but I'm always aware. You know, I'm making a decision to not go to sleep when I should because I do have to get up at a certain time because that's when the pool opens. And, you know, I can't just necessarily sleep all day. So it is. It's so hard. I mean, it's so hard. Like, and that's even though, like you say, it is it's basically free and just takes time and prioritization. So always something to work on with sleep. It is. And I think that's such a great technique, setting the sleep alarm. And in fact, I, I, on my phone, I have a setting now that's called bedtime setting and I can set it to where I want to go to bed and when I'm getting up and it will actually alert me and put a little alarm. I think it's like 10 minutes before bedtime. It's sort of a reminder. And I think that's a really great strategy. And I like what you said too about like, so if you're staying up later than that, it's a decision, but you're forcing yourself to acknowledge that decision. I write in the book, uh, scientists, researchers have now come up with this new term called sleep procrastination destination where they're actually like, uh, putting off, you know, it's like, Oh, I know I should be going to bed cause I have to get up early, but you know, I'm just going to watch one more episode of Netflix or, you know, people get hooked on social media or whatnot, but we have so many things that are vying for our attention. So it really does take some 
work and deliberate effort sometimes to adhere to that. But the payoff is so wonderful. And the other thing that I'll just mention is that sleep deprivation, like it's cumulative and you can't just make up for it in one or two nights of, you know, you can't deprive yourself of sleep all during the week and then think you're going to get it, make it up for it in the weekend. That just doesn't work particularly over time, you know, it's one thing to have a couple of, of nights where you don't have ideal sleep, but when this becomes chronic, it really does add up. And the thing that's really interesting is as you become more and more sleep deprived, you lose your ability to sort of notice and recognize the detriments that you're experiencing. It's like those people that say, oh, I'm fine on six hours of sleep. They're not fine. They're just better than everyone else at convincing themselves that no, no, they're okay. And throughout this project, you encountered a lot of people who truly believe that the recovery method that they are selling works. But it seems like you also encountered plenty of people who kind of knew that their method was a gimmick. So was it hard to to kind of out some of these people in the book? Have you gotten any responses from people who were like, hey, you know, that really does work? <laughs> I haven't, which is kind of it's surprising to me, I have to say. But I don't feel like I really talked to anyone who I felt like was like, yeah, I know it doesn't work. There, there are a few people at, you know, the Tom Brady uh, infrared pajamas were just so ridiculous that that was sort of maybe one example where it was like they had to sort of know that, um, you know, they're, they're selling a few, yeah, they're making a lot of money on it though. So they probably don't care what I think, <laughs> but I haven't, you know, it's interesting. I really expected that when the book came out, I was going to be like flooded with letters and emails and tweets from people really pushing back and saying, what do you, what do you mean? This doesn't work. I know that it works, but instead I really, I've, I've received almost none of that. I mean, I've gotten a little bit. I've heard, like I said, I've heard from a lot of Tom Brady uh, fans, but you know, there's, I don't think there's anything to be done to that for them. Um, but mostly what I've heard is I have heard from so many people who've said, thank you so much for this book. You have helped me realize how stressed I was about this stuff. And like just knowing that I don't need to be so anxious about it has been a huge help. And so it, it's interesting. That's been the overwhelming response that I've had from people is just, wow, thank you for giving me permission to not worry so much. I thought it was really interesting where you noticed in one study that it showed that the highest ranking Olympians, I believe, actually used the massage services available to them in the Olympic Village or whatever, a training center, half as much as those athletes who were finishing in kind of the lower half. So this could be before because they were more focused on the basics, keeping things simple, maximizing their sleep and just doing that. But I also couldn't help but wonder like how much of this could have been just genetics, you know, like if people are genetically better athletes at some level, like, can you be genetically better at recovery as well for your body? So did you ever bring genetics into the conversation as well? Um, I looked really hard. I couldn't find, as far as I could tell, I hope that this is changing, but while I was researching the book, I could not find any research on this. It's very clear. Like there's no doubt that there is a genetic component or that some people have a natural aptitude and to the extent to which it's genetics versus like learned, I don't know, but there's definitely, you know, I write at the book, actually two people come to mind, Camille Heron and Mike Wardian. They are both ultra marathoners who have just seemed to have an incredible capacity for recovery there are people who do ultra marathons sort of back to back and perform at high levels. So they're not just like plodding along, but they're actually, you know, running, running fast and recovering very quickly. But it's interesting. I talk about Camille. I mean, she's really someone who's also just really mastered recovery and she totally does it by feel. And in fact, I talk about, there was a time during her training when she really got 
very focused. She's a scientist by trading, so she's very scientifically minded. But she got into a position where she was so focused on the metrics and the data that she just it was making her anxious and her performance was going down. And so she threw out her sports watch and started running, you know, for a while, just totally on intuition. And that sort of broke her out of this. And so now, you know, she really bases her training and her recovery around how she's feeling and just a you know daily check-in with how she's doing rather than, you know, planning the season out long in advance each workout and things like this. And I think that that's, you know, there's a real lesson there. And that is, you know, she may, and I do think that she has an extraordinary capacity for recovery, but she also has found an approach that really optimizes the recovery that she has. And that is to listen to her body. And, you know, she's sort of on the other end of the spectrum. She's listening to her body that's saying, okay, you're recovered now. You're, you're fine to go do another marathon. Whereas like most of us would say, you're probably not fine. You know, so it can go both that listening to your body can go both ways. And in triathlon, we've had some pretty high-profile cases of professional and age group athletes testing positive for prohibited substances. Some they were able to trace back to contaminated sodium supplements. And and you mentioned this earlier, and in your book, you actually liken some of those supplements to snake oil. So besides the risk of testing positive, why should athletes be careful with supplements? And should we just stop taking salt supplements? Oh, yeah. The, these electro, electrolytes are salt, okay? We get salt. Like, your doctor may have told you that you need to reduce the salt in your diet. And that's actually, a, I don't want to get into that's also controversial. But but the bottom line is we get salt through the foods that we, we don't need to supplement them. And there's actually a group that studies ultra-endurance athletes. And their latest guidelines on this, they're written by a doctor who's also an ultra-marathoner. His name's Marty Hoffman. He actually wrote the latest guidelines on this, which say that, and we're talking here about ultra endurance events that athletes here do not need to take electrolyte supplements that it's fine to drink to thirst. So the thing to do is to drink to thirst, eat normal meals and foods like an ultra endurance athlete will eat during a race, but it's not necessary to take these electrolyte tablets or drinks that contain, I mean, there's no reason to take salt in your drink. You can get it from your food. Your body doesn't care which it comes in. This is really the idea that we need these things dissolved in water to be drinking is really just really strong and it's apparently effective marketing. Um, but yeah, there are two, I talk at the book about two triathletes who actually got bans because they ended up testing positive. They inadvertently ingested a banned substance through one of these tablets. And Christy, this isn't covered in the book, but we have had listener questions come in about products that contain CBD oil and so, or just CBD and like the, you know, creams and stuff that are available now. So our personal stance was based on a few articles we were able to find from USADA that talks about the supplement like nature of the CBD products. And that makes, you know, contamination too likely for Haley and my own risk standards. So This might be outside the scope of research that you did, but did you have any insight on CBD usage by athletes? I didn't. I wish that I had gone into this. I've been getting this question a lot, and I live in Colorado, so this is like a big big thing here. Um, But I did write a a story recently for 538 about this. I could look it up and send you the link if you want to put it in the show notes. But basically, um, I think that CBD is potentially promising for some of the things, you know, for pain and and some of these things, but we don't have good research yet. So it's sort of like an interesting idea that hasn't yet been like scientifically proven. And the problem is that right now it's kind of the Wild West. It's very much like supplements where you don't know what you're getting. And this isn't to say that it's all a bunch of snake oil, but you just, it's very hard to know what you're getting. It's hard to know, you know, where people are getting their supplies. There isn't 
because the industry is so new, there isn't a lot of standardization. So you don't even know from one product to another. There have been some testing studies done where they're looking at the stuff and it, it doesn't always contain what it says it does. The levels may not be what's on the label. Um, that's also a huge issue with supplements. And I think for athletes, particularly ones who are going to be subjected to, to drug testing, I would just avoid supplements altogether. There's really no good. I have I have yet to see any good scientific evidence for supplements being beneficial to athletes. You could easily go online and find studies that are showing that this supplement or that supplement, you know, in a study of 10 people, they, they found some little effect. But when you look at the evidence in totality, it really, there's just no good reason to be taking this stuff. That's not where you're going to get your edge. I mean, the, the comparison of, take, of doing that versus just eating a healthy diet, getting enough sleep and all this other stuff, there's just no reason to take that risk. And Christy, from following you on social media, we know you recently spoke at the American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting. Do you have any exciting or interesting takeaways from your time at the conference that you might be able to share with us, like the very Cliff Notes versions? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I think the thing that I'm most excited about, actually, is there is a new group that's formed. It's called STORC, which is the Society for Transparency, Openness, Oh, gosh, something in kinesiology. I'm going to get the, the acronym wrong. Um, but it's really exciting. It's it's a group that's formed that's really trying to push for some reforms with, within the field to improve uh, the transparency of research, to make data more open, to sort of improve the rigor and reproducibility of research in this field. And I think it's a really exciting time. It's, it's very early days, but I think that yeah, this group is really looking toward some of the reforms that have been taking place in psychology um, to try and make that field more rigorous. And I think that, you know, the potential is there to really improve the quality of the science that's being done. And I just want to say, I'm not trying to disparage uh, researchers that are currently working in the field, but I think that the culture of the field, and it has been that some of the, the techniques that have been acceptable just just haven't been up to the kind of rigor that maybe they should be. But I, I think that this is changing, and this this new group is really pushing for some interesting stuff. Well, Christy, thanks so much for taking time with us today. And it sounds like one massive takeaway we all could have is that perhaps just going and getting a copy, a hard copy of your book with Good to Go, what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery and putting your feet up and maybe setting aside some time to be reading that um, is an excellent way to get the recovery benefits that you might be looking for. So thanks again for coming on. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I hope if there's one thing that people take away from the book, I, I really hope that it gives people sort of some better tools and a better understanding of the scientific process so people are better able to really assess some of the claims and be able to you know, tell the snake oil from the solid science. So Thank you so much for having me on the show. Haley, do you know what our most popular Iron Women episode has been so far? I do, Alyssa, because you know I love the numbers, and it goes back to fall of 2017 when we interviewed exercise physiologist Stacey Sims. You are right. And do you know what Stacey Sims has been up to these days? I've heard she's working with Noon Hydration to help formulate some products that have the female endurance athlete in mind. Noon Hydration products have clean quality ingredients and are also non-GMO project verified, which means top quality ingredients for your body and the planet. Noon Hydration offers a range of hydration products for all your workout and recovery needs. My personal favorite is Noon Sport Fruit Punch flavor. What's yours, Alyssa? I like the Noon Sport in the grape flavor and our listeners can go to noonlife.com 
and shop with a 30% off code of IRONWOMEN to find out their favorite flavor. And don't forget to let us know. That's noonlife.com with the code IRONWOMEN for 30% off. Wow, Alyssa, my voice sounded so much better during that interview. Um, I'm pretty excited to get back back to that uh, level of clarity. But in the meantime, I do want to, uh, I was wondering if after hearing from Christy, after reading her book, have you made any changes to how you recover from training? You know, not too much. I've never been someone who has bought into a lot of those like devices and things like that. But, and I will say that I'm, I'm keeping my weekly massage that I like because I do, I think, I think making me be still for an hour is a good thing. And I think mentally I believe that it works. And so I'm keeping that in my, in my practice, but I think it's good to realize probably how much the mental side of recovery really plays a part and how much believing in what you're doing is probably skewing some things a little bit more than we might realize. Yeah. I think it gave me a little like levity in that it doesn't have to be perfect. That my body's pretty good at recovering, especially if I get enough sleep, which I need to be doing this week. Obviously I need to rest my vocal cords, but, um, if anyone is interested in reading Christy's book, it is called good to go. You can get it from your local bookshop And if you want to hear more from Christy, definitely check out her podcast. It's called Emerging Form. It's a fascinating look at the creative process. I think they just wrapped up season one and they'll be starting season two next month. So check for that on your podcast app of choice. And your final reminders to enter the Live Feisty Noon Hydration Contest at livefeisty.noonlife.com. We are picking two lucky winners. And also July is the last month for the early bird pricing at the Outspoken Summit. So head to outspokensummit.com and get all signed up. And again, if you are looking to support a company that supports women in triathlon, check out Wahoo Fitness. Thanks, guys, for listening. And Haley, I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production. We want to thank our sponsors and partners, Noon Hydration, Wahoo Fitness, Zelios, Fen Coffee, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen.